As I said last week, we will be finishing today, which gives me five chapters to get through. And because of that, I'm not going to be going verse by verse. In the way that the last five chapters are set up, there's really no need to do that. Um, But I also realize that in the process of basically trying to highlight certain elements of the story to give the background of what the the five chapters are, because they do form a cohesive purpose, there's (laughs) there's possibility that it'll be a little confusing, if it is at first anyway. Don't worry about it. Hang in there till kind of uh, the second half. Not that there's going to be a second half. meaning the separation, I mean, of the way we've been doing it. Uh, But the second part, really, of this message then will be kind of bringing it home to the application of today. So if you're a little befuddled about the beginning, don't worry about it. Just hang in there with me. We're looking at Judges chapters 17 through 21 this morning. And these last five chapters, the book actually ended, in a sense, with last week's end story and the the climax of Samson's tragic life and all of that that we've looked at for several weeks. And these last five chapters really form an appendix to the book of Judges. It's a little bit unique um, within uh, the Old Testament historical narratives, but there it is. It's still the inspired, infallible, and authoritative word of God. And an appendix, when we're talking about any kind of book, an appendix Appendix is used by the author to give supplemental information to what he has already written about to help the individual reader understand better what was already written, or it gives additional information to undergird perhaps his reason for having written uh, what he had written in the book for which he is writing the appendix for. The events of the last five chapters... More than likely, there is a little bit of scholarly disagreement on this, but I fall in the camp of, of uh, the fact that these last five chapters more than likely preceded, came before what we've already studied in chapters 1 through uh, 16. Um, so, you know, the thing that we want to ask this morning is why, in the inspired words of God did he see fit to include these last five chapters? Why such an appendix? And it's because the theme and the warning of the book of Judges is cross-cultural, meaning it is, it is, it is, it is just for, for every, every part of civilization, it is timeless, means through all time, and it is so dire of a warning that the inspired writer wants us to underscore the issues that God's already talked about and that we've discussed for this past year. In the first five verses of chapter 17, what we get is basically the setup for, again, what we've been studying for the past year. We're introduced out of the blue, because it's an appendix, this guy named Micah, who we're not told a lot about it or anything else, but we're told that he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) But he comes clean. But the only reason he comes clean is because his mother had put a curse, not knowing that her son's the one that took it, put a curse on whoever stole the 1,100 pieces of silver. Now that, that doesn't hit home with us, this idea of putting a curse on something. 
unless you're into something weird. But in the Old Testament, when, when a patriarch, or in this case, a matriarch of the family, puts a curse, pronounces a curse, it would be kind of a prayerful sort of curse on something. One, the people took it very seriously, and oftentimes the Lord took it very seriously. So it was something to, to not just shrug off as someone who was a little whacked out putting a curse on the things that were stolen. Now, just for perspective, 1,100 pieces of silver equates to 10 years wages so we're not talking about a small amount of money well that is strike one for Micah and just basically for the people in the epic of the day well the mother is thrilled obviously to have her fortune back and as often happens with the nominally religious she is struck with this sort of a new sense of religious fervor because of her good fortune. So she desires to show her gratefulness to the Lord by dedicating her refound fortune, if you will, to the Lord. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? We're talking about kind of a personal revival here. Well, no, it's not great because in spite of what she thinks, she doesn't really have much of a clue as, again, remember this was the whole theme of Judges, that God's people had gotten so far away of the Lord that their religion, that their worship of him bore little resemblance to what he had intended all along. So Micah's mother is not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but she thinks she is a faithful Jehovah worshiper. So what does she do? Well, in verse 3, she has some of it made into an idol, which is why you can see, if you know anything at all about Judaism and the religion, the worship that God spelled forth, idolatry was blatantly, strongly prohibited. So, so with good intention, she thinks she's worshiping Jehovah, and to show her thankfulness, she makes an idol out of some of the riches that she had returned to her, but it's really a blatant slap in the face to the God she thinks she is worshiping. You were the first one to laugh, honey, stop. You have to live with me. So what I want to do is I want to help you understand this by putting it in a modern context because the whole purpose of God doing it the way he did here is because this is our day, our day. Now, cross-cultural, it is timeless. It is our day. So let's just change up the, the thing to a contemporary sort of situation. Whoever this woman is, we don't know, you know, pretend we don't know, she's grateful that what amounts again to a fortune is returned. And in that thankfulness now, today we're speaking of, she decides that in honor of the Lord, with a grateful heart, she's going to donate 10% of her windfall to the GLBT. She's going to donate 10% of her windfall to NARAL, National Abortion Rights Action League, and part of it to Planned Parenthood all of which is meant to be a blessing and an honor to the Lord. Well, that's strike two. Well, back to Micah, now her son. 
Micah, and we read this almost really very casually with no detailed background or anything else, but we can tell from these first few verses that Micah has established his own, what amounts to basically his own house of God within his home. Mark another strike. He made his own idol and his ephod. The ephod was used in the proper worship of Jehovah, and sometimes it was even used by the appropriate priest to discern the Lord's will. That's a whole other story. Did I say another? I did. I'm a mainer. That's another big strike you can mark up. And then Micah consecrates his own son as priest. Another strike. Which, by the way, his name isn't really Micah. That's a contracted form. His name is Micah Yahoo, which means who is like Jehovah. And that can be taken one of two ways. Who is like Jehovah, meaning I know this Jehovah and there is no one like him. But another way that it can be taken is I have no clue who this Jehovah is. And so I'm asking who is like Jehovah? Because I obviously don't know him. Mark up strikes three, four, and five. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God sums up the entire epic of Judges. And again, what we've been in for the past year in verse six by writing this In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the overarching theme of the entire book. It is the overarching theme of mankind. And it is the overarching theme, certainly, of our day. Now, am I overstating this? There was no king in Israel is repeated four times in these final five chapters. So I don't think so. In chapter 17 and 6 and 21, 25... The phrase is added to that, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, serving as bookends, basically, for that larger theme of there was no king in Israel. Well, then the text in the historical narrative jumps to another vignette of life in the day. And we have this same guy, Micah, and he runs into a sojourner, that is a traveler on the road, who happens to be from the tribe of of Levi. Remember, there were the 12 tribes of Israel, all God's people. And he runs into this guy who's from the tribe of Levi. And according to God's prescribed manner of worship, the only real priest can come from the tribe of Levi. So when Micah founds out who he is and that he's from the tribe of Levi, what does he do? He's ready to hire him as his personal priest upgrading from his own son, whom he had appointed already as a priest in verse 5. Now, this is a telling little detail. It's telling in that Micah seems to be keenly aware that his son, whom he appointed as a priest, is not a legitimate priest. But at the time, that was rather irrelevant because he would serve Micah's purposes. And yet when Micah has the opportunity to buy a real priest, meaning one from the tribe of Levi, he jumps at it. So he buys this Levite for the wages of ten pieces of silver a year, which in and of itself was not legitimate. Because the Levitical priests weren't up for sale. 
they weren't to be supported by, by an individual, but rather were to be supported by the people that they served by heading up the worship of Yahweh. And they were supported out of the tithes of the people that they brought into the storehouse of God. So again, this also is all warped. And it's unusual. But remember the theme of the entire epic of the book and why the judges were raised up by God in the first place. It is because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Verse 13 then caps off this vignette as well as telling us where Micah's heart of worship was truly at. He wasn't concerned, you see, about the proper ritual of properly worshiping Adonai. But rather, verse 13, we read Micah saying, Now I know the Lord will prosper me. Why? Because I have a Levite as a priest. When I wrote my book, The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity, part of my compulsion to write it was the ageless impact that this warped gospel called the prosperity gospel has on people of faith. And guys like Osteen and his ilk certainly took it to new heights, but the prosperity God who can be manipulated to act like a magic genie in our lives, we are seeing, is as old as this book. Micah didn't give a sacrifice of worship when he hired the Levite. He bought a holy good luck charm. And how does chapter 17 end and 18 begin? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Then we come to a third vignette, the tribe of Dan, or the Danites. The tribe of Dan was yet again one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the tribe of Dan had been previously, or up until the situation we're reading here, which remember, I believe precedes what we read in the book of Judges, the tribe of Dan has been prevented from assuming their divine inheritance, meaning the land that God had apportioned out to them. And they've been prevented from inheriting it or taking it over because of the resistance by the Amorites and the Philistines. But truth be told, the tribe of Dan didn't really much care for the land that they had been given. So they weren't too worked up about it, nor were they too concerned about gaining it back. So they start looking for a place that they like better a place to call their own. And it turns out that they really like the real estate currently owned by Ephraim, yet another of the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning they like the land that their kin are living on. Well, on the journey, the tribe of Dan runs into Micah's rent-a-priest, as I'll call him, and they recognize his voice. And so they ask him to ask God if they should continue pursuing their conquest. And the, the irony in all of this just kind of escalates through these three chapters. And it, that, again, part of that is why it gets confusing. And the rent-a-priest answers, oh, sure, as if he's consulted the Lord already. Yeah, go ahead, take over the land that you're thinking about taking over, even though it's already possessed by God's people. Now, the tribe of Dan, as I said, one of the twelve, go against the people of Ephraim one of the twelve. Meaning, let me put this in other words, meaning that the people of God from the one tribe gather their forces and prepare to go to war against 
the people of God from the other tribe, and they park their army outside the gate. Now, remember, it is one thing for the people of God to go into a land and basically rout or kill or kick out all of the pagans that are there when God himself has ordered you to do so. But that's not what's going on here. So this is really debased. And again, what would you expect when in those days there was no king in Israel? So... As it happens, the people from the tribe of Dan end up at Micah's house, receiving intel that there was an ephod, and there was idols at Micah's house for the taking. And so they go and they help themselves. And while they're there, the rent-a-priest says, Hey! Puts up a little stink. And they tell him, basically, to shut up and remember that they've got their army of 600-plus waiting right outside the city gate. So unless this rent-a-priest is Chuck Norristein or Jack Bowerson, remember Jack is back, this priest can only say, Ah, Mazel Tov, help yourself, of course. But in 18 verse 19, they make him an offer he can't refuse. In verse 19 of chapter 18, they said to him, Be silent, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? Now, again, remember, this this priest is dedicated, dedicated to the servant of Yahweh, loyal and devoted to his current employer who took him off the streets. Verse 20, the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household idols that formerly belonged to his previous employer and the graven image, and he went among the people. Just walks away from his previous employer, Micah, and he goes with these guys. So they leave Micah's house, which again is their own kin, and they go to Laish and they wipe out their kin, and they rebuild and they rename the city. Oh, oh, hum. The last thing they do in verse 31 is they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. And again, what is the very next verse ending chapter 18, beginning chapter 19? Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. Why? First of all, the first question. This is another Levite, so don't get confused with the Levites that are popping in and out of here. This is now a different Levite. Why is this Levite who was set aside by God with the tribe of Levi to be the priestly tribe for Israel, why is this Levite living in isolation? Why isn't he priesting? Well, the Levite takes off after his runaway wife. And there's a lot more that could be said there, but I'm really kind of glossing over this because this is one of the more macabre, one of the more uh, grotesque, uh, hard-to-swallow scenes in Scripture. But I do want to note the one thing you have to remember when you are reading the Bible is you have to discern between that which the Bible teaches versus what the Bible teaches 
is reporting. There's a big difference. You know, you hear people say, oh, the Bible talks about rape and it justifies rape and all oh, this and that and murder and mayhem and everything else. Yeah, the Bible does certainly talk about that. But differentiate between what it's reporting as historically happened versus what is right and holy and good and just from Jehovah. Very common error. Well, the Levite, as I said, takes off after his runaway wife, finds her at her father's house, and as they leave, the Levite is determined not to stop in Jebus. And Jebus would become, or was Jerusalem, just another name, the Jebusites lived there. And the reason he was determined not to stop there on his journey back was because Jebus was a pagan outpost. But the irony here is profound. Why? Because this is not the Israel who is walking in faith with Jehovah, who is worshiping Him in a holy manner as God has prescribed, meaning God's people are essentially as debased and pagan as the pagans that they're now trying to avoid, or at least that this Levite wants to avoid. And in some ways they are worse. So the Levite avoids the pagans and he goes to the land of his kin where the perverse disaster follows. Now today, redactors and critics who have been duped by the spirit of the age try to make the Bible say things that it does not say. What clearly has happened here, as it happened with Lot in Sodom, is that homosexuals in the community, this is not ambiguous, this is absolutely clear, homosexuals in the community demand sending the Levite out of the man's house under which he had sought shelter for the night. And the text tells us the reason they want him to send him out is so they can have relations with him. And it doesn't mean sit down and get to know you better with conversation and chatting. Now, it's difficult for us to understand the whole ancient Mideast concept of hospitality and what that required and all, and I'm not going to go in that today. I've gone into it uh, before and past messages a while back and all. But believe me, they took it very seriously, even to the point of, if you've read the passage, of uh, bringing about the end result. And the end result of avoiding, remember this all came about because the Levite wanted to avoid going to that pagan city of Jebus, so instead, he goes to the city of Israel, of God's people. And the end result is that there is rape. There is macabre dismemberment that leads to civil war, that leads to near annihilation of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the final scene... There is a pretense, yet again, of worship to Yahweh, which was a combination of both religious fervor and drunkenness and sex. Tell me this isn't contemporary. While the men in chapter 21, verse 1, vowed not to give their daughters to the Benjaminites for brides, the loophole in that vow 
is that while they made the vow that they would not give their daughters to the Benjaminites to take their, their women, their, their uh, daughter, virgin daughters, to be their brides, the loophole was that it didn't prohibit them from allowing them to kidnap their daughters to be their brides, which they allowed them to do. So you see, the people are still very religious. But the corruption and the, the, the pseudo-religion of Jehovah worship just continued completely debased. And again, the last thing we read closing out the entire book now of Judges and these five chapters is, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When God is not king, when there is no authoritative, always just lawgiver, every man becomes a law unto himself. The three institutional monoliths which have succumbed to this moral independence, as I will call it. Our religion, the home, and society. First, religion. And I'm coming up now to today. I cannot think of any greater illustration of this than all that goes on in the churches that wear Christ's name that are blatant, satanic, wickedness. And I am speaking now of institutionalized wickedness and rebellion, not merely personal wickedness and rebellion, because that occurs in every church, including the club. In a five-mile radius of where we are right now, one can find any number of churches, all but two claiming to be Christian and followers of the Bible, and yet these so-called Christian churches will selectively affirm and bless the sins of fornication, the sins of idol worship, the sins of homosexuality, they will encourage divorce. They will honor multiple marriages. They will fight for the ability of a woman to kill her child in the womb and will honor every idea of cultural morality except those which, although biblically absolute, prove too convicting by the law of God which is written and inscribed on their hearts. So they create their own truth, attributing it to God. It's bad enough that what you have is exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You have the blind leading the blind. But they pride themselves on stumbling the little ones. By that, I don't only mean chronologically speaking, but little being young in the faith, young in the understanding of the God of the Bible. 
and they stumble them with impunity by educating and instructing them in the ways of sensuality and lust. And they do these things with a straight face. They do these things without hesitation. And they do them without shame, believing that they are in the center of God's will. Just like Micah's mother. Oh, praise the Lord, I got my fortune back. Now let me defy God in rebellion and make some idols out of them. In the words of Jeremiah chapter 6, Were they ashamed, speaking of the wayward culture of God's people, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down. So positively deceived by the spirit of Antichrist, due to their own biblical ignorance, and I would add willful ignorance, they incline towards anything their own heart tells them, which is why Jeremiah also warns later that the heart is more deceitful above all else and is desperately corrupt. If you are living your life by what it feels in your heart to be good and right versus wrong, you are already on a precarious route to the discipline of God in your life, if not full-blown deception. Consider this past Friday's Charlotte, North Carolina Observer, the newspaper. The United Church of Christ sues over the same-sex marriage ban voted in by 61% of the citizens. North Carolina recently passed a prohibition uh, saying that only a man and a woman could be united in holy matrimony. Go figure, those hate mongers, right? It was passed by 61% of the people, and the United Church of Christ, the UCC, has filed a lawsuit against the state for upholding... Again, think of the irony. The spiritual institution has filed a lawsuit against the secular institution for the secular institution upholding the clear dictates of God's Word. So what happens when there is no king and everyone does what is right in their own eyes? Quoting, the local religious leaders, who include a rabbi, are joined by colleagues from Asheville and Raleigh, along with a national denomination, the UCC. All support the rights of same-sex couples to marry. They say state prohibitions, including a constitutional amendment passed by voters in 2012, violate their First Amendment right of freedom of religion. And they are asking the federal courts in the Western District of North Carolina to overturn the ban as quickly as possible. North Carolina judges some of its citizens as unfit for the blessings of God. We reject that notion, said the Reverend Nancy Allison, pastor of Holy Covenant United Church of Christ and one of the plaintiffs in the case. The sacraments of baptism and communion are open to all, she said. I don't know what Bible she reads. 
so should all God's children be able to receive marriage. And just for point of reference to my statement about five miles radius of this church, the Congregational Church on Eustis Parkway is the United Church of Christ. The Lithgow Congregational Church in Winslow is United Church of Christ. And there's many, many more. There is an eternally grave disconnect between the religion of man who use the Bible at whim versus using the Bible under the lordship of King Jehovah in a Christian context under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, in fairness, the Bible-believing church, the Bible-believing church now, not just the churches that are posers, bear significant responsibility for this having proffered a salvation message that presents Christ as Savior without Christ as Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or uh, yes, it was Bonhoeffer, called it cheap grace. And for preaching the love of God apart from the righteousness of God. Woe be to the church that diminishes or ignores sin in its proclamation of God's grace. The institutions of man's religions have succumbed to moral independence. And secondly, the home has succumbed. Did you happen to notice when we were in the, uh, the uh, particular uh, uh, epic of Samson's life, that the sequence of his tragic life began with Samson defying his parents' counsel about his selection of a wife from Timnah rather than from their own people? Do you wonder why there has been and continues to be such an incessant assault to undermine the authority of the family through education, through the media, and through the government. It does not take a village to raise a child. God tells us what His plan for the family has been all along, and it is comprised of a mother and a father united till death do us part in holy matrimony. How many of our children's deep Deep issues are a result of that single precept having been diligently unraveled and then destroyed and then redefined. And if you are not familiar, by the way, with the Pelletier family custody issue, that until recently was in Boston, you should Google it and see how far we have slid into the pit of hell and of totalitarian government. In the opening vignette with Micah and his apparently wealthy mother, there is utter spiritual and moral confusion with what transpires in that home. And I didn't bother to take the time to itemize how many of God's Ten Commandments were violated in that short little vignette. 
but I would guess at least eight, and possibly all of them. And yet they are living life as if they are in complete compliance with the kingship of Jehovah. Talk about an ageless and contemporary theme. The first institutional monolith which has succumbed to this moral independence is religion. The second is the home. And the third is society at large. I could spend months doing a topical series on our cultural degradation using illustrations in the news daily. Let me give just a couple as we close. Twin brothers and Liberty University graduates Jason and David Benham were set to star in a show called Flip It, forward on HGTV that was to be broadcast beginning in October. The show was about these two brothers who would transform these fixer-upper homes for people, making dream homes out of them for people who could never afford it. But stop me if you've heard this one. When it was revealed by the outing organization called Right Wing Watch, HGTV labeling David Benham as an anti-gay, anti-choice extremist for reportedly leading a prayer rally in 2012 outside of the Democratic National Convention held in Charlotte, North Carolina, HGTV stopped production. Not surprisingly, HGTV refuses to say why they decided to not go forward with the show. This was the reply of the Benham brothers. We were saddened to hear HGTV's decision with all of the grotesque things that can be seen and heard on television today. You would think there would be room for two twin brothers who are faithful to our families, committed to biblical principles, and dedicated professionals. If our faith costs us a television show, then so be it. (laughs) Yeah. First Duck Dynasty, and now the Benham Brothers. One more illustration that I just got moments ago this morning in my office. And I did check it up online to make sure it wasn't some baloney, bogus stuff that's all over there out there. Nintendo. Everybody knows Nintendo is apologizing and pledging to be more inclusive after being criticized for not recognizing same-sex relationships in English editions of a life simulator video game. The publisher said that while it was too late to change the current game, it was committed to building virtual equality into future versions if they're produced. Nintendo came under fire from fans and gay rights organizations this past week after refusing to add same-sex relationships options to the game Tomodachi Life. We apologize for disappointing many people by failing to include same-sex relationships in Tomodachi Life, Nintendo said in a statement released Friday. Unfortunately, it's not possible for us to change the game's design, and such a significant development can't be changed or can't be accomplished with a post-ship 
patch. The book of Judges is the story of our nation. Yes, our world, but I don't want to get too distracted with that. It is about our nation. It is about our state. It is about our church, and it is about our homes. And in many cases, it is the story of what has become widespread and personalized Christianity. Realize what you are up against when you are out there and you are trying to give somebody the hope of Jesus Christ. Think of just just a couple of the perversions that I mentioned this morning, and I've mentioned past weeks as I try to do in my sermons as I bring in current events. You got this Christian church saying this, and you got this Christian church, and they have no way of discerning truth because they are blind, deaf, and dumb, spiritually speaking. And so to them, Christianity is like everything else. It is whatever you feel in your heart. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ is no longer Lord as much as He is Savior. Which means, blessing me in the midst of, maybe even because of, my sin, guaranteeing me heaven and eternity in a field of dreams. Satan has the upper hand. I will tell you that right now. That's not a surprise. The Scripture tells us that. The prince of power of the air has always been there. This is Satan's domain. Jesus even acknowledged that. say, what? Think about the three temptations given to Jesus. In the telling of the story, Satan says, If you bow before me, I will give you the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth, for they have been given to me. And indeed, they have been. God threw Satan down here, and this is his domain. This is not Christ's domain. That sounds pretty pessimistic. Oh, no, 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 not at all. You see, it is Satan's domain while God tarries. And it is Satan's domain insofar as God permits that. But God's goal in working through those who are committed to Jesus, not only as Savior, but as Lord, is that through the power and empowerment of His Holy Spirit in the world today, God does defeat Satan here and now, but we know that it will never be fulfilled in its completion until the end. And that end is guaranteed and it is certain. Jesus made a public spectacle of them, referring to Satan and all of his demons triumphing over them through the cross. I had no idea, well, I I rarely have any idea why I start a particular book when I do. Judges has, has, has blown my mind in how contemporary it is and how difficult it is to look in that mirror and realize Judges isn't about them, they, out there, alone. It's about we, us, I, here, looking in the mirror. (sighs) 
Anybody got some Tums on them? <laughs> Thanks be to God. For Jesus, our Savior, is He your Lord? Remember, there were people who Jesus says will come and they will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do many mighty things? And he will say, I never knew you. What was the difference? Jesus has fire insurance policy. Got it. Or Jesus as my Savior and now as my King to whom I will submit my will my heart's desires to His will and His desires until the day I am with Him in eternity. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, thank you for the elements today and reminding us yet again of what you've done for us, what our redemption has cost you. Father, I so pray. You have told us that judgment will begin with the household of God. And Father, I have to believe that that judgment has already commenced. Lord, I pray individually we would be before you weekly, daily saying, oh God, not my will but yours be done. My kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen.